The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Man, but no, we should feel for a lot of people going through, you know, the flooding. But, but then again, Philippines, they're, they're way up on us in terms of floods, right? And like mudslides and all that, you know? And here it's like, uh, yeah, we can survive, we have whatever. But in the Philippines, people die by the thousands, you know, just overnight, you know? Imagine some guy, this uh, innocent guy, you know, just a flood victim, you know, mudslide went through his town, and he's up on television, go, oh, yeah, uh, just last night, uh, there was a uh, flood, and uh, everything washed down my block, just down my street, you know, and uh, I saw my cousin, my cousin, my first cousin, he's sliding down 40 miles an hour with all of his belongings. But the funny thing is, he lived two miles away. Natural disaster stories have been a staple of humanity since time immemorial. Floods, quakes, fire and brimstone, they've all been used for allegory or for simple entertainment. What separates these types of stories from disaster stories like a building fire or a ship sinking is that natural disaster stories pit humanity against a force whose existence is completely independent from human beings. Well, actually, that viewpoint is a relatively new way of thinking, since natural disasters were thought to have been caused by a superior entity angered by humanity. The most famous disaster story in human history, the story of Noah, was given a new cinematic adaptation in 2014, and the themes of humanity's wickedness are very similar to the themes of humanity's ignorance depicted in a disaster movie released 10 years prior, 2004's The Day After Tomorrow. On this episode of ARC, I'm going to give my review and commentary on these two similar stories of how humanity has brought upon the end of the world, from myth to religion, to science. This is Ark. God bless television. To the movies, the good movies, to every possible kind. I am the danger. I am the one who knocks. Is that a hair gel? <coughs> Loud noises! There's no crying in baseball! I'll be back. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. These are their stories. From now on, I order you watch more television than ever before. Welcome, one and all, to another episode of Arts Review and Commentary. My name is Omar Latiri, and thank you so much for listening. As always, this episode is brought to you by ARC's Amazon page. Visit artsreviewandcommentary.com and click on the Amazon button to shop for all your entertainment wants and needs. You deserve it. Shopping Amazon through artsreviewandcommentary.com is the best way to help this show and the Realm Network out. Noah. Who is that? It's the Lord, Noah. Right. Where are you? 
What do you want? I've been good. I want you to build an ark. Right. What's an ark? Get some wood, build it 300 cubits by 80 cubits by 40 cubits. Right. What's a cubit? Let's see, a cubit. I used to know what a cubit was. Uh, well, don't worry about that, Noah. When you get that done, go out into the world, collect all of the animals in the world by twos, male and female, and put them into the ark. <laughs> right. Who is this really? One of the oldest and perhaps most well-known story of natural disaster is the story of the Great Flood. The story has everything. Humanity's decadence and violence bringing about a cataclysm to end it all. And the one man whose family was chosen to survive and bring about the rebirth of the world. In the Bible, the story is actually quite brief, lasting only three chapters in the book of Genesis. But, despite its brevity, Noah's story is familiar to all ages around the world. It's certainly not the only flood story from ancient civilizations. Those familiar with Greek mythology will note the striking similarities between the story of Noah and the story of Deucalion and Pyrrha. Ancient native North and South American cultures had their own flood stories as well. The purpose of these stories is twofold. One, it gave humans an intelligence behind natural forces, and two, these stories were ways of directly tying human existence to the awesome forces of nature. Without these stories, the purpose of existence would be meaningless in the face of random destructive powers. It is the foundation of not only our humility before the world, but also of our belief that humanity can somehow influence things like storms and tsunamis. In recent history, perhaps the most well-known movie regarding that way of thinking was the 2004 apocalyptic special effects disaster movie, The Day After Tomorrow. At the rate we're burning fossil fuels and polluting the environment, the ice caps will soon disappear. Professor uh, Hall, our economy is every bit as fragile as the environment. Perhaps you should keep that in mind before making sensationalist claims. Well... The last chunk of ice that broke off was about the size of the state of Rhode Island. Some people might call that pretty sensational. Not since Star Trek IV The Voyage Home has a movie featured such a disproportionate environmental message. In Star Trek IV, the extinction of humpback whales brings about an alien space probe that promptly starts vaporizing Earth's oceans. In The Day After Tomorrow, Global warming brings about a massive cooling effect on the planet, generating tsunamis, tornadoes, and a new ice age. Hippies, they're everywhere. They want to save the earth, but all they do is smoke pot and smell bad. 
Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not a climate change denier. The effects of industrialization have consequences that are just starting to be realized. In fact, the polar vortex that North America experienced this winter sounds similar to what happened in the day after tomorrow. But the cheesiness of the story and the hokiness of the writing has split opinions on how the day after tomorrow fits in the discussion of climate change. Some climatologists are noted to have been pleased with the simple fact that a major motion picture was even produced about climate change. But those same climatologists are disappointed that the movie made about that topic is The Day After Tomorrow. Are you f***ing kidding me? I wouldn't be surprised that climate change deniers point to the silliness of The Day After Tomorrow as proof of the inadequacy of the science behind man's impact on the planet. The intent of the movie is somewhat muddled. On one hand, it tries to be a simple popcorn movie that Roland Emmerich is known for, like Independence Day or Godzilla. But the specific casting choice of actor Kenneth Walsh as the Cheney-resembling vice president was deliberate. Emmerich wanted to criticize the policies of the Bush administration for rejecting the Kyoto Protocol. That's a heavy political subtext for a supposed popcorn film. To that end, we end up with a disaster movie and a political agenda, two things that don't mix very well. It's like, it's like going to a fast food restaurant and then having them serve their version of health food and it ends up not tasting that good. <laughs> We go to movies like The Day After Tomorrow to escape preaching, but the lessons behind that movie are not too different from that of the story of Noah. Both are about how the destruction of the planet is directly related to the evils of humanity. Both emphasize the preservation of the ecosystem. After all, isn't saving the polar bears a goal for both Noah and climatologists? and both use rain and flooding as methods of destruction. So, why is it that people refuse to believe the science behind climate change? In fact, why do some of these same people believe in the story of Noah more than they do in science? I think it has to do with the concept of hope. Noah and his family were tasked with the job to repopulate the planet, ensuring the survival of humanity and animal life. They were good people chosen to live instead of the wicked that deserved to perish. The implications of accepting the truth about climate change would carry the threat that billions would suffer despite their faith. Additionally, many people refuse to believe the science because weather changes on a planetary scale could only be the result of something much more powerful than mere humanity. In other words, only God or Mother Nature can change the planet, not human beings. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. However, I suspect the reason that many are reluctant to accept the science of climate change is that the negative consequences of humanity's impact on the planet is seen as a punishment. After millennia of believing that the divine can give out reward or punishment based upon the actions of humanity, it's not surprising. 
The desire for some sense of cosmic or supernatural justice is passed down to us with each generation. Good will be rewarded and evil will be punished. But science and mathematics don't care about the desires of humanity. And when stories try to place a moral value on science and mathematics, the audience may reject it. When we come back, my review and commentary on the latest version of The Great Flood, Darren Aronofsky's Noah. I'm Mark. And I'm Lowell. Together, we do the Mark and Lowell Show here on the Realm Network. And each week, Buzz Burbank joins us as we present the Mark and Lowell for Premium Show. It's an uncensored weekly chat about our lives and about pop culture, you know, stuff we like. It's funny and anything can happen. And get this, it's just 99 cents an episode, $3.50 for a month, $10.50 for three months, or the big package, $39.95 for the whole year. But, Lowell, Yes. But did you know that when you buy a one-month subscription, you don't just get our new shows for that month. You get a month of access to every per premium show we've done on the Realm Network this year. No other podcast we know of gives you that option. The per premium show is the best entertainment we offer, and it helps support all the shows on the Realm Network. So do yourself a favor and go to markandlowell.com to sign up for the poor premium shows. It's a whole new realm of news and entertainment. When I heard talk of miracles, I dismissed them. But then I saw the birds with my own eyes, and I had to come. There isn't anything for you here. No. This all belongs to me. This land, this forest, that stronghold of yours. Did you really think you could protect yourself from me in that? It's not protection from you. Then what is it? An ark to hold the innocent when the Creator sends his deluge to wipe out the wicked from this world. Return to your cities of Cain. No, we have all been judged. I have men at my back and you stand alone and defy me. I'm not alone. So how does one make a story three chapters long into a two and a half hour movie? Well, first you gotta know what people are expecting to see. The story of Noah is usually boiled down to these events. 1. Humanity is too wicked for God to take it anymore, so he decides to kill everyone in a flood and start over. 2. God chooses Noah to survive and commands Noah to build an ark where Noah, his family, and all the animals of the world will be safe from the coming flood. 3. The animals board the ark. 4. God makes it rain for 40 days and 40 nights, and the earth is flooded. 5. After the rains stop, the water slowly recedes, and the ark settles on Mount Ararat. Number 6. The animals are released, and God sends a rainbow as a sign that the earth will never be destroyed again. By concentrating on Noah and his family, the story is relatively easy to understand. And also, with keeping the story short, there's no room for motivations beyond following God's plan. So, where do the stone monsters come in? What? This movie features giant, six-limbed stone monsters known as the Watchers. 
There is no mention of them in the Bible that is read today, but their existence is not without precedence in theology. You know how Peter Jackson and company took stuff mentioned in the Silmarillion and added it to the stories of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit? Darren Aronofsky did something similar. By going to scriptures written thousands of years ago that are not part of the story of the Bible. In one such work, the Book of Enoch, there are mentions of fallen angels called the Watchers who gave rise to the Nephilim. Now, of course, many people would cringe at the thought of these additions to the story of Noah. But to me, these stone creatures were not as weird as the depiction of Noah and his family as vegans. For the purposes of this story, I can accept that Noah was a 600-year-old man, or that all the animals in the world boarded the ark, or that in order to repopulate the planet, some major incest would have to be committed. But veganism? Hippies. They're everywhere. They want to save the earth, but all they do is smoke pot and smell bad. In the movie Noah, Aronofsky goes deep into what it must be like for a man to know that the entire world and everything on it is going to be destroyed. The result is a man living in a cruel world having to do cruel things in order to survive. There is no laughter and no joy that can come from the destruction of all human life, especially when confronted by other humans who also seek survival. The Bible doesn't mention anything about the people of the world other than their wickedness because the chapters are about the flood, not about the wickedness of humanity. When you read the entirety of the Old Testament, you'll see that the entire existence of humanity is defined by its cruelty and violence after the fall from Eden. That's what makes the Gospels of the New Testament so jarring in comparison. After millennia of pain and suffering, one man is able to change that viewpoint and offer hope instead of misery. This rain is meant to wash us off the face of this world. But we are men. We decide if we live or die. But what about the movie itself? Taken on its own merits, is the movie Noah worth watching? It's okay. Everybody does a capable job of acting in this movie, but because the story is such a downer, there isn't much range to be explored. Everyone involved is going from one sort of existential crisis to another, so the actors don't really get much opportunity to express any kind of happiness. The effects are very good, with one beautifully shot sequence interpreting the story of the first chapter of Genesis. Two out of five stars for Noah, a movie that captures the darkness of the Old Testament, but one that doesn't need to be seen in theaters to be appreciated. That's it for this episode of ARC. Subscribe to this show on iTunes and leave a five-star review. Like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash ARCreviews. Follow the show on Twitter at ARCreviews. And don't forget to shop Amazon and listen to all the other great shows on the Realm Network at artsreviewandcommentary.com and realmnetwork.com. My name is Omar Latiri, and this is ARC. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.
I was just wondering, what would be the effect of an arc on the average neighbor? Now, here's a guy going to work seven o'clock in the morning, Noah's next door neighbor, and he sees the arc. Hey, you up there. What do you want? What is this? It's an arc. Uh-huh. You want to get it out of my driveway? I got to get to work. Listen, what's this thing for anyway? I can't tell you. Ha, 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 ha. Well, I mean, can't you give me a little hint? You want a hint? Yes, please. How long can you tread water? Ha, 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 ha.